Well, there was a book that was published in 1954 called Lord of the Flies, and it captured readers' attention about one thing, the reality of inward evil and chaos that, com- that comes from an uncontrolled heart. The reality of inward evil and chaos that comes from an uncontrolled heart. Now, the book, or maybe for a lot of us, the movie in 1990, the book is still an extremely popular novel today, but the plot is about a group of British boys who were stranded on an island where it displays their disastrous attempt to try to govern themselves and even care for themselves. Now, the novel, to, to be sure, is political in nature. It was written with a political agenda behind it. It was, it was exposing what groupthink was, or maybe some of the problems from individuality or even emotional leadership versus rational leadership, and, and what is the root of morality or even what causes immorality. And the book ends with the boys being rescued from the island, so it, it ends well. They were found because, though one of the boys, sets of boys, was worn against another tribe of boys, and one of the boys decided to set the entire island on fire, and that's how they were found by a different ship. Now, that seems like things got out of control pretty fast, someone setting an entire island on fire, but it really started fine. At the beginning, they found a river where they could have water, and even they found a conch, which allowed everyone to be able to express themselves and to speak. Everyone had a, turn, had a, had a time to share or guide. They even had a free election to determine the leadership of the group, but, but this soon led to paranoia by many people. It led to people not doing their chosen or elected jobs. It led to blame shifting or even establishing now two separate tribes. There began physical fights amongst the boys within the tribes and against others. And there was even idol worship of a slain pig's head. And later there were stories made up by the boys in order to stir up uh, fear about different spirits or monsters on the island to scare and then later control one another until finally one of the boys kills another boy. And then another child dies. And the haunting phrase that really captures the attention or or captures the tension of the novel is is not found until the very end. So you have to get to the very end to see what is the point of the book. The boys on the island were found. A Navy ship landed on the island in order to investigate the fire that had been sending smoke up to the sky. And by running away from terror, one of the boys literally ran into the naval officer, the Navy officer that had later found all of the boys collectively. And when he ran into the officer, he and the people who followed him just burst into tears. The book says they just started crying. Now, why did they start crying? Were they wimps? Were they tired? Were they exhausted? Were they scared? No, the book tells us why they started crying. The boys burst into tears because they found, quote, the end of their own innocence. What started out so fun, they were now changed forever. In many ways, they were ruined by their time of freedom on the island. They were ruined never to enjoy life like innocent kids again. Now, our scriptures in their entirety are rooted with everything initially being very good until man's sin leads to man's and all of mankind's chaos. We've been for months 
looking now at the beginning of the garden, and all of our desire and emotion is naturally, man, it must have been good to be there at that time. Because we just look around us all the time. It doesn't take 30 seconds on the news or even a conversation with someone going, man, Lord of the Flies has nothing compared to our world today. Because man left to himself, man determining what the scriptures say, man determining not to listen to God, man ignoring God's call for worship and obedience ruined everything. And innocence is no more. Our scriptures are clear that that you and I have inherited something. We have inherited something from Adam at the beginning. We have inherited his heart. We have inherited the heart of Adam. Now, the doctrine that Genesis 3, of which we'll be in for several verses this morning, the doctrine, one of the doctrines in Genesis 3 begins to unfold, and it will keep unfolding throughout the rest of Scripture, a doctrine called original sin. The doctrine of original sin. Original sin defines human nature, you at your root, as having been morally and ethically corrupted due to disobedience of Adam. So you can imagine, hopefully meeting Adam in heaven and him looking at you and him just saying, yeah, I'm sorry about that one. But original sin defines human nature as have been morally and ethically corrupted everything due to Adam's disobedience. Now, a lot of people who call themselves Christians don't believe in original sin. They, they, don't, they don't downplay the reality that they do sin, but they, they would see themselves as not inheriting a sinful nature, but rather starting out okay. You know, a lot of you, you, you see a baby born in the hospital. I said this last week. I'll say it again. You see a baby born in the hospital. Maybe even you. What do you post on social media about it? This is the most perfect and precious baby in the world who is theologically corrupted by sin. But you wouldn't post that, or you shouldn't. Please don't. Or do, and let's and see how many followers you get. A lot of people don't believe in original sin, but the Bible will explain and does explain again and again that that those people have an improper doctrine about the beliefs of sin. If you mess up about who you are, you will inevitably mess up on who Christ is. If you are at your root good, why do you need someone to make you good? If you are at your root needing perfection, then you will long for someone who can wash you clean. When you think about the doctrine of sin, think of two things. I am born a sinner, and I do sin. Your nature affects everything. And the doctrine of original sin holds that every person born into the world is tainted by the fall such that all humanity is ethically debilitated. And people are powerless to rehabilitate themselves unless they are rescued by God. Why did an island filled with innocent boys wind up killing each other? Was it water? Was it the environment? Was it the government system that they had set up for themselves? No, it was, it was their heart. It was what, it, what was at the root of them, their inner soul. Their heart was corrupt. But remember that the beginning wasn't like that. It was originally very good. And in sermons you've heard, and I've been telling you of how good it was, but how in the world is today so filled with evil? How are people so rotten? How does it seem like there, are, there is evil outside us that is encroaching upon us? How did we become inheritors of this hard heart? How did we go from Adam 
And Eve being called very good to you and I at our root, not being good. And why now do we need, or in Christianity, what is called a savior? How did a good world go bad? And then how do we lead others to go bad? This is the message of Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. I thought on Monday I would get all the way through 24. I bit off more than I could chew. And yesterday afternoon I was like, just pull the eject cord and let's just go through verses 13. Next week I'll go through verses 14 and 15 on their own and then we'll cover verses 13, or through 14 through 24 altogether. But the, the root message of the rest of the chapter of chapter 3 answers the question of how did everything go so bad and why are things so bad today? Why is the world the way that it is? Why are you the way that you are? Why do you act the way that you do? The root word for all of this is your sin and other sins. So congrats on the inheritance that you have received from the first father of the earth. Now last week you saw sin enter into the world, into the garden by man and woman being tempted by a serpent, where the serpent tempted Eve and Adam, and Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned first. And today I hope you'll see the effect that this sin has on them and has on you. For the next three weeks we'll talk about what are the effects of sin on our own heart and the world. I want us to hear two things from the passage this morning. The first, the first effect that we see from sin entering into the world and being acted on, the first thing that happens is man's own shame. You see that in verses 8 through 10. Man's own shame. We see here in, from chapter 1 and 2 and, and a little bit into chapter 3, the beauty and perfection of the garden quickly becomes ugly and it becomes shattered. Joy is replaced with sorrow. Comfort is replaced with cursing. Pleasure is replaced with pain. Intimacy, you think of the relationship that Adam and Eve had with the Creator, it is now met with expulsion. Wherever you experience those things in your life, and and all of you have experienced sorrow and cursing and pain and expulsion, maybe even recently you have experienced sorrow, cursing, pain, and alienation, but we have these things because we live in a world that is continually experiencing what is called the curse from the garden. Notice first how Adam and Eve respond when they were caught in their own sin. They respond in their own shame. You see this in in all of it in verses 7 through 13. Look at how they act when they are found. And keep in mind how you might act when you are exposed in your own sin. How do they act? In verse 7, the very first thing that they see is themselves, what what does it say there? They're naked. They see themselves as sinners, and they feel naked. The first thing they hear, so the first thing they see is they see themselves as naked. The first thing they hear as sinners is the sound of God. Look at verse 8 of the text. I'll, I'll read it for you. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, whatever the cool of the day means physically? Does it mean like a wind or a gust or does it mean like dew on the ground? Whatever it means practically, wherever they were caught, they feel themselves in trouble. In the midst of the cool of the day, they feel themselves trembling. But you, you have a picture here. You need to keep your attention on the text here. You have a picture here, even though they feel in shame, you have a picture here of a father who was seeking out wayward children. 
in the cool of the day is, it's a, it's a great euphemistic translation, likely referring to an evening breeze at the time when the sun is setting or in the hot of the ancient Near East, you have like a wind that is cooling you from the front of the back. And the picture here is of God walking, which is, which is a sign of him recognizing their sin and continually going towards them with his own action, where he's going towards them again in relational intimacy. But for whatever reason, they're afraid. Well, and that reason is because they're in shame. They hide themselves even amongst the trees. And imagine you've ever waited for someone. Maybe those of you who are in the military, you wait for your spouse to come home, or even you wait for them to come home from the base, or maybe some of you have been on a work trip, and, and you show back up, and maybe there's your kid in the front yard with a sign holding you, or, you know, it's amazing to even, to even watch our own dog who has better hearing than we do. He can know when a car, he can know when my parents' car is like half, mi- or not half, a quarter mile away, entering into it. So there's something clunking in that car to where our dog goes, that's Candy and Stan showing up. And, and he just kind of melts down and freaks out. You know, he's clawing at the glass on the front door. We, we have here what is normally recognized as, as what does it look like when you're waiting and anticipating for someone whom you love to show up? And what did Adam and Eve do? They clothed themselves and they hid in trees, trees that were previously known as good, trees that previously gave them all life, but here, trees that they thought would keep them from the one who created trees altogether. The sound that Adam and Eve heard caused them fear, it caused them shame, it caused them to hide. And in this conversation with man and woman that the Lord has, notice that the Lord asks them questions. He shows up and he asks them questions. He asks them four questions, perhaps trying to give them a chance to explain themselves, or maybe it's meant to be read like a courtroom drama. And it's the prosecuting attorney asking them a series of questions for them. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? And and what is this that you have done? Four questions to the man and to the woman. But God's not asking questions because he's in the dark here. He's not asking because he's confused or wanting to know how he reapproached his creation and everything out, is out of control. He's, he's not looking for answers so much as he's inviting a response. What have you got to say for yourself? What sort of explanation can you offer? As if he's saying something's gone wrong, I know what it is, but I want to hear it from you. Now catch this. Who does God address here? In the text. Look at, look at the text with your own eyes. Who is God the Father talking to? He's talking to the man, the one left in charge. Remember who Adam was in the garden? He was like the king of the world who, in many ways, metaphorically, was holding a sword in order to battle off anything that was evil. And so everything had gone awry, and God shows up and talks to not them, but him the one left in charge. The Lord addresses the man singularly here. Now, the, now the words for you in, in earlier in chapter 3, they were plural. That word would have been plural, much like you and I might say, y'all, or you guys, or the two of you. I might go up to a house, and I'm talking to you two specifically, but I'm still saying you. But here, the, it shifts. The language here shifts. It's no longer you guys or you all, but you. What have you done? Those plural, as the serpent is addressing Eve, but yet Adam is right here. He's speaking to him. And here the Lord speaks directly to the man, and, and Eve sinned first, but God holds the man accountable. It's, it's helpful for us to understand why he was talking to them, and then he was talking to Adam altogether. 
He's not excusing the action of the woman. He's going to talk to her later. But the man has the priority in terms of his accountability for the Lord. The man was the one given responsibility to to yield properly with all of God's world and all of God's people. He was supposed to be the one who was in charge to care for what God deemed good and what he loved most. Now, this this is something that's not just exclusively happening in Genesis 3, but this is a theological trend that will continue to develop as the scripture unfolds, where man in a marriage is is ha- or has accountability or responsibility over his house or over his wife. This is a theological trend that carries on into the New Testament. You see it in Romans chapter 5, where Paul argues that sin entered the world through not Eve, not Adam and Eve, but sin entered the world through Adam. It's like all of us, maybe in, I don't know if it's 2007, 2008, or 2009, when when companies had been found to do things improperly and, and all of the world was wanting the CEOs of those companies to be on trial rather than the middle managers. Ultimately, they're supposed to be the ones who would be on trial for the actions that their company took. By the way, it's their own company. They're the chair of the board or they're the president of the organization. And here, Adam is the king of the world. And so it's like God points at his heart and says, what have you done with everything that I've been given? or everything that you've been given. It's also a repeated trend that happens in 1 Corinthians 15, where we, where we understand how, how a household ought to operate. Now, shouldn't his argument be through Adam and Eve, or maybe even through Eve? After all, who was listening to the serpent? Who took the apple first? Was it not Eve's fault, or maybe collectively both of them? No, it, Adam was the one responsible. Adam, as the one who was meant to be the gracious leader, who was meant to have the gentle, God-given authority, he was the head. He was the representative of all mankind. And the woman was deceived, but man sinned more willfully. Eve was tricked, but Adam stepped up and said, give me the fruit. Eve will be held accountable for her sin. We'll see that in the later verses in the chapter, but she cannot say, or, or she'll say that the devil made me do it. She'd be the least to have a case, though, that she wasn't something, uh, or she, she would have a great case that she was something of a victim. After all, she was lied to. She was deceived. Though she shouldn't have entered into the conversation after all, in many ways, you see this as a breakdown of communication. Who did God give instructions to and, who to, and how to live in the earth? It was Adam. So who would have told Eve how to live on the earth? It would have been Adam. So clearly, either she wasn't listening properly, or he wasn't communicating properly. Or as he was there, we see in the beginning of chapter 3, when she was being tempted by something that was evil, it should have been him who should have stepped up and said, no, talk to me, I'm in charge. The woman was deceived, but Adam was willful. Scripturally, he was standing there, meant to be the protector and leader of his wife, and yet he takes and he eats. No excuse that the serpent deceived him. Now the Lord approached these sinners in their own grace, but they still hid. He came after them, but they still hid. They were ashamed. They were afraid. They've been found out. And verse 7 says they saw themselves and made clothes for themselves. This is an expression, practically, and also a metaphor of their own spiritual nakedness. Once they partook of the wrong tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes, according to according to the serpent, were truly opened. But remember that this was part of the lie and the deceit that the devil 
did on his own. If you eat of this tree, he said, your eyes will be open. And he was certainly right. He knew what he was talking about. Now, of course, he was deceiving. Their eyes were opened, and now they saw not an innocent world of perfection, but they saw themselves, and they were ashamed. They saw themselves as sinful. Now, friends, in your own sin, isn't this what you feel? Maybe you've been confronted by it. Maybe you've rested your head on the pillow knowing that you did something that was ungodly or unbiblical. Isn't this how you feel? You feel that sense of shame. There's the objective guilt that you've offended God. But there's also shame, feeling that you are dirty. This is why we see in the Gospels that Christ on the cross pays for not only your guilt, not only the the definite federal guilt that you have brought on, the forensic declaration, for those of you who are theology nerds, not only did Christ pay for what you were in your root, but we need to know that we're innocent, that we've broken the law, but also that we've seen the visceral shame there placed on him. Why is it that the gospel writers will go into so much detail to show that Jesus was spat on and mocked and flogged, where they twisted a crown of thorns on his head and they jeered at him and they, the passerby would come and say, take yourself down from the cross, mocking him, saying the Messiah that you are? Why would the gospel accounts go into such detail, talking about the the torment that they physically placed on him? All of those things that they did to him, those were things that you would do to dishonor someone so that he would feel shame, so that he would feel betrayed, so that he would feel dirty. And that's really what happens to us in our shame. The difference here is that he had done nothing wrong. The gospel writers go into such great detail because they're showing that Jesus received what all we know we should receive because of our sin. We not only receive the penalty given to us, but also the shame that comes with it. When you sin, and some of you, you may even have done so this morning, when you have sinned, you you realize that you have not fully dealt with a sense that I have been exposed, I have been found guilty, I am dirty, I'm embarrassed, I'm unclean, and everyone knows it, look at me. And you hide so that people don't look at you, so that people don't find you unclean, so that you're not embarrassed, so that you don't feel dirty, so that you don't feel found out, so that you don't feel exposed, and so you hide. And insofar as we are guilty of sin, not victims, not manipulated, For those of you who have been abused, you're not guilty of that on your own, but others who have placed that on you. We we continue to feel this shame, which is why the scriptures tell us to walk into the light, where the, the first step of forgiveness and repentance is to show up to the one who is coming after you. The first step in getting on with your life is no longer hiding under the covers. Friends, I wonder if you should be introspective about this passage right now and just looking at yourself and go, do I hide? Am I hiding? Am I quick to hide? And recognize what the Lord was doing in this text, coming for them, asking them questions, not to further abuse them, but to draw them in repentance. And this goes on and on throughout the rest of scriptures. Friends, what do you do when you hide? Well, in many ways, you ignore the forgiveness that can be exposed to you by the Lord. At the sound of God's approach, these people sensed that their fig leaves were not enough. 
They not only made clothes for themselves, but they also crouched deeper among the good trees of God's bounty. And in many ways, this is a pathetic (laughs) delusion for anyone. The king and creator of everything made everything and is looking for them, and they're going to hide in bushes that he created. The psalmist tellingly asks, Where shall I go from your spirit, O Lord? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. They thought they could hide from the Lord, yet he found them. And friend, in your own hiding, do you fear that you will be found? And do you fear that when you are found, you will be dealt with differently than what is shown in the scriptures? We all know this. When we disobey, we naturally succumb to Jonah's folly when he is trying to jump on a ship to flee from the presence of the Lord. In unbelief, it spawns the the basic delusion that we can be where God is not. We think if we hide in a conversation or are not open about our own struggle or propensity or temptation or sin of what the Bible calls it, we think if we can hide from that, then God will not find us. But friends, there are time and time again where we see in the scriptures where God shows up. And there is a promise at the end of the scriptures that says he will show up finally, where you will hide no more. And you will be dealt with either by what was placed on Christ or you will be dealt with in what you have covered for yourself. More, we think that we can privatize our own thoughts, denying the fact that, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, I can discern my thoughts from afar instead of you discern my thoughts from afar. And sin brings hiding and, it's, and it brings it in multiple ways. Even as Christians, we can become mastered by the, the we who can hide from God's own delusion of what we think it would be. But how utterly pathetic Adam and Eve were because they were literally hiding from the face, as it could be translated, or the presence in verse 8 of God whom they had regularly seen. God whom they regularly had communion with and relationship with. What does sin do? First, sin causes shame in your own heart. But also another effect of sin, secondly and finally, is sin brings on blame. More sin. Sin brings on blame. Look at verses 11 through 13. A second response or effect of sin in the garden is blame. You've probably seen this before from others, but the man blames the woman, and then he blames God. He says, I only took what she gave me. Notice how they both say that. She gave me fruit in verse 12, and I ate. Verse 13, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate sort of rendering themselves passive in the story. I'm, I'm just here. Other people gave, they, they brought it to my attention. How am I not able to do this? The man blames the woman and then blames God. But remember, when he first saw the woman, <laughs> remember how quickly this relationship changes? When he first saw woman, how did he react? This is God's good gift to me. This at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He sang a song for how glorious she is. He, he looked at everything in the world, sized up everything, looked at how he could be relational with everything, and finally was presented with someone who gave him all pleasure that nothing else could. And he said, magnify yourself more, Lord, through this. And then what happens? A couple of verses later, she did it. It's her fault. Marriage counseling 101, right here in Genesis chapter 3. Don't 
blame someone else of what you have done for yourself. God, you gave me such an amazing gift, and now the one who was a gift is a fault. So long, marital bliss. It's you, woman, who gave me the fruit. It's you, God. I thought you were giving me good gifts, but you gave me this woman who led me into sin. You can see Adam's way of handling sin. Maybe it was the woman's fault. Maybe it was his own fault. Certainly wasn't God's fault. God gave them every instruction, every level of obedience. They thought they could have freedom without boundaries. But how often we recognize that true freedom is found within boundaries God has given us. Parents, the moment you you had kids, you probably thought about, should I put a fence up in my front or backyard? Why? Because you love your kid. You don't hate your kid. Your kid might go, mom never lets me play outside of our yard. Yeah, because dump trucks go by and they don't care about you. But here they start blaming one another. You can see Adam's way of handling this. And still this happens today, doesn't it? You blame your kids. You blame your parents. Oh, I am the way I am because I'm a son or a daughter of he and her. We blame our brothers and sisters. We blame stress. I'm just so stressed at work. That's why I yelled at you or punched you in the face. We blame disappointments. I got let go. That's why I don't talk to my kids anymore. Almost any time when there's some public person or celebrity or a movie star or an athlete or a politician do something wrong and the world calls them to apologize, it is the most glorious blame shift of all time. Always capitalize at the very end, I'm sorry if you took what I may have said the way that you may have took it. They didn't say anything. They might as well have said, someone else made me do it. It's really not my fault. It's a recounting of all the ways that others have sinned against me or all the ways that that I've been under stress or I've been under anxiety or I've been depressed for a long time and so sin just sort of happened in my life. It it boiled to the top and exploded, but you've got to understand I've I've been going through a lot. I mean, Eve really was asked a very difficult question. One word was changed in the serpent's question of what she had previously heard. She got nine out of ten words, right? That's a really good, great, you're going to punish me for one thing? And Adam is right there going, yeah, punish her for one thing. I didn't do it. It happens all the time around us. We're always looking for others to blame. It's this or it's that. Most common delusion is that God has given me the passion and appetites so strongly that I can only yield to them. Why is it my fault that I fell to the temptation with her? She's the one who hung out with me. Why is it that I succumbed to the the temptation of of taking something from work that wasn't mine? It's right there. No one uses it. We have it in bulk in the back. We always look to blame someone else for something that we see. Many of you know that uh, a, a great and former pastor named Timothy Keller is suffering from uh, pancreatic cancer. And one of the things that has been amazing to watch him suffer from cancer is how he seeks to talk about it. Typically, people talk about cancer as something that is a battle or something that you fight against. And in many ways, you do through medicine and, and a lot of zeal and a lot of passion and a lot of desire to be bold against something that is literally eating your body from the inside out. But he, he is quick to say that cancer 
Cancer is not the thing that I'm fighting. Sin is the thing that I'm fighting. I am tempted to act a certain way and blame it on cancer. I'm tempted to act with a certain kind of attitude and blame it on something. Rather, I am... I need to pursue the one who, yes, I am enduring something physical at the moment, but I am enduring the pursuit of righteousness and holiness. Friends, you may have a difficult kid, and that is not God's way of punishing you. It may be God's way of sanctifying you. You may have a difficult relationship, a difficult job, a difficult circumstance. My truck broke down last week. I can't wait to pay for it tomorrow. And I can't wait to blame that truck on all the unrighteous ways that I will act towards people. I literally kicked a tire. The tire's not even broken. I acted unrighteously towards it. It's a truck. If, if, if this truck hadn't broken down, then I wouldn't be so mad. No, that is not what is after us. Our hearts are evil, even when they are tempted to pursue blame. You might think it's your God-given hormones, your God-given passions, your appetites, your exquisite tastes, your intelligence, your insecurities, your experience, your energy, these together leave us subject to sins we might think barely tempt others. But God made us this way. So what are we to do? Such thinking oftentimes is from below, meaning from hell that we just need to accept who we are and act according to what we think is our nature, what we think is our true identity. If you read Adam's sin through the lens of today's world, you'll, you'll see the language of victimhood. Man was Adam a victim. Man was Eve a victim. They were a victim. And the God who gave them to each other, he's really at fault. The modern version goes like this. God, you're responsible for my situation that has left me so susceptible to sin. My upbringing, my abuse, my inept parents, the teachings that were all around us, and it plays into our culture in a truly therapeutic amnesty. Give this thinking, and God is responsible for how you sin. But according to the scripture, no one from Adam to the last man on earth that will ever live will ever get away from what is called passing the buck like this. None of us will get away from this. Listen to what James says. James, the brother of Jesus, says this in James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The perverse intellectualizing of poets or writers or analysts or preachers will not hold water to this truth. Adam's pathetic attempt, no matter how deceptively rephrased by us, will not suffice. We must never say or even imagine that God is tempting us. And yes, there, there are true victims people who do truly feel shame and should not because of what has been done to them. And yet there are so many occasions where even though we sin and are sinned against, we have to recognize that we are still sinners. And we have the proclivity because of our inheritance from Adam to act sinfully, whether something comes at us that is good or bad. Here's an absolutely critical truth that every Christian needs to understand. Sinners can still be sufferers, and sufferers can still be sinners. Both of those things are true. Sinners can be sufferers, 
and sufferers can be sinners. Both those things can be true. This gives you some compassion, some humility when you see people and everything about them makes you so mad that they've mistreated you. Everyone, even sinners, even the worst sinners, at some point in their lives, they, they're also sufferers. And it gives, them some, gives us some measure of compassion for them. But the other side is true as well. Sufferers can be sinners. In fact, we read in Hebrews that it's in Jesus' suffering that he faced some of the most intense temptation to sin. It's when, it's when the world, you could imagine, is bringing him at his lowest that he is facing an onslaught of temptation to sin. So you can be a sufferer and still be a sinner in your own life. Now, this blame game is no respecter to persons. It, it happens with Christians and it happens with non-Christians. We, we see it in, in very powerful people and we see it in non-powerful people. They're caught in sin. And instead of saying, as David said, against you only, O Lord, I have sinned, they say, I was lonely. I was tired. She cheated on me first. The system is against me. I'm under constant attack from the media. I was wooed by his flattery. I couldn't help myself because of the way they dressed or the way they talked. On and on and on you can go. And when, friend, when is the last time you, on your own, in the midst of maybe feeling your shame, when is the last time that you actually took all of the blame yourself? When's the last time you took responsibility for your sin? When's the last time you said, I sinned against you? I'm sorry. No caveats. No buts. No, but, you know, no, ah, just, I'm wrong. Because you haven't stopped sinning. That's why you keep doing this. I haven't stopped sinning. That's why we keep doing this. When's the last time you said to a spouse or to a loved one or to God, it's my fault? No excuses. I'm the one to blame. I did it. I had opportunity to pursue righteousness, and I chose not to by my own free will. So often, our response is just the same as Adam and Eve. Shame. And then blame. And it's apparent that at that moment, he was more aware of his nakedness and shame than of his sin against God. Again, we see Adam, what is he doing? He's thinking about himself. He's considering himself. What was Eve doing when she took the fruit? She considered all the possibility that she could have outside of the boundaries that God had given her. What were they thinking of? Themselves. Adam had undergone a profound change, but all he could do was express his fear and his shame. And the only thing that Adam truly confessed to was feeling fear. Of course, he knew that he had broken God's command, but in his new self-focused state, he was more concerned about how he felt than about his own sin against God. This self-focus and shrinking from God remains part and parcel to our own, what is called a fallen condition. So this self-focus, you and I, why are we the way that we are today? Why is the world around us the way it is today? Because we are, again, inheritors of Adam to where we have, like he had, self-focus and a desire to flee God, even when God shows up. No one, Romans chapter 3 says, no one seeks after God. Everyone flees God. No one seeks after God. Everyone flees God. It's not just that Adam was wandering in the wrong way or in the wrong place. It's that when he felt the cool of the day, he fled. Even fallen man's apparent seeking is not after God, but after the idolatrous God of his own making. Clothes and trees, fear and shame and flight, 
are an incurable stigma of the fall. This is really what we inherit. We only begin to deal with them when God says, where are you though? Now friends, perhaps God is calling you from your hiding today. Perhaps the the singular reason is for you feel the pressure and no one is looking at you, but you feel the pressure that is there, that I am hiding, that I am running, that I've sung these songs about God's amazing grace, that I can come to Jesus, and yet you feel today that you are hiding. I just want to say, good. That is a good place to feel, is the shame of what you have done. Friend, come out of your hiding place, though, from your self-reproach, from your covering, from your secrecy, from your self-torment, from your vain remorse. Now, what are we to do with this work? What are we to do with this passage that seems to be just a lot, of, a lot of heavy rocks placed on shoulders of a man and woman in the beginning, even to the point where we see, man, I am actually a lot like them. Everything was good, and then man sinned, and then everything was bad. And in a couple of weeks, we'll see how everything that was bad had actually a promise within it for God to make everything good again. But before that, before you have to wait two weeks for that, what do you do now? How do you go home for the rest of the day and be like, well, that was a really sad sermon, and apparently I'm a terrible person. And it is sad, and you are a terrible person, but what do you do now? What are we as sons and daughters of Adam to do since we share such solidarity with them and our sins that we are thoroughly sinful and utterly responsible and blamable? What is the answer to this? May I suggest that in a sense we are to bring or we are to place a rest of all of our shame and all of the blame that we have. We are to, we are to bring that and to rest that at the foot of the cross. Paul explains, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, meaning his offspring, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness that reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So if we inherit sin, what are we to do with our hard hearts? We are to go to the one who is perfectly and amazingly capable to make our hearts new. Our second Adam is who Jesus is called in the New Testament. Our second Adam was one man in history who never tried to blame anyone or endure with shame. If there is anyone who could object to the trial that he was in. At any account that was thrown after him, he remained quiet and just brought on and absorbed the very wrath that confessors place on him. As a sinless man, he never needed to pass the responsibility for sin. Rather, as our sinless God-man and Messiah and Savior, as he is described, he said, take all of your sin and bring it to me and let me deal with it. Friend, you are at a point, if you are at a point where you are ready, where you are willing, and you are desperate to come into the light with your heart and have God deal with you, I encourage you, do not waste time and go to the Lord and do what the scriptures call repent and believe that he can forgive you. He can can take you as wretched as you are, and the language says that he can wash you and then places righteous roads around you to where you feel shame no more. And that more times you sin, come back to the one who paid for those debts 
and call him to continually clothe you. The same God who appeared in the cool of the day to his first children is calling out for you, for you to be dealt with the same righteous and tender hands. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the totality and the awareness of how evil and awful sin is in the beginning. And we thank you that you are not silent even there and you are not silent today about how we can continue to live with our hearts that need your grace so much. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us in the person of Jesus, that you sent him and that he was perfect and that he brought us to himself. Oh Lord, we pray that you would build up in us as a church a culture that does not seek to hide but gives ourselves over in the light to be encouraged by others to seek the Lord. We pray that you would build up in our church a sense that does not blame our own weakness and our own sin and wretchedness on anyone else but ourselves so that we can be built up in the faith that you have brought us around. Oh Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all the work that you have done. It's in Jesus' name that we say this. Amen.